And we're talking about something today that I think is germane to every Christian, the resurrection, true or false. The Sadducees, who do not believe in the resurrection, are going to be confronting Jesus. Remember, we're in Jesus last week, and it's Tuesday of the last week. And on Tuesday, many things happen. I'll cover that in just a second. One of these is he's going to be confronted by the Sadducees, again, who does not believe, they do not believe in the resurrection. They don't believe in angels. They don't believe in demons. They don't believe in the afterlife. Why would anyone want to be a Pharisee? A Sadducee. <laughs> or, a Her- or a Herodian. <laughs> Why would anybody want to be any of those guys? But anyway, if you would, please stand for the reading of, word, of the, God's Word. Matthew 22, verses 23 through 33. The same day, again, Jesus is being confronted by another group on the same day. This is Tuesday. And the same day, the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him and asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses said that if a man dies having no children, his brother shall marry his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were with us seven brothers. The first died after he had married and had no offspring, left his wife to his brother. Likewise, the second also, and the third, even to the seventh. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had her. Jesus answered and said to them, You are mistaken, not knowing the Scriptures nor the power of God, For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels of God in heaven. But concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the multitudes heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. This is the word of God. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth of your word. And now, Father, I ask you today that your Holy Spirit will descend upon this crowd here today and that each person will know that they've come in contact with the living God, that you'll touch each one of our hearts in a special, unique way. Lord, have your way here with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. As you know, the theme of Matthew is the promised king. The king is coming, the king is coming. Thank God the king is coming. Now again, this is the last week of Jesus' life. On Tuesday, chapters 21, 18 through 26 are all dealing with Tuesday and the things that happen on Tuesday. And again, we get into the Olivet Discourse, the parable of the ten virgins. So there's a lot of incredible teaching that Jesus did on Tuesday. The Herodians last week tried to set a trap for Jesus, the Pharisees and the Herodians. Remember the question, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? And they thought they had Jesus. If he answered this question in the positive or the negative, he would be wrong for the reasons that I already gave in the teaching. But Jesus answered them this way, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God. You have a responsibility to the government as long as the government isn't asking you to do something contrary to the word of God, and we have a responsibility to God over the government. So that is the message there. Now, the Sadducees are going to set another trap for Jesus. They think they have him by this leverite question. You know more about that in just a second. Their question was this, for the Sadducees say, 
the, the, about the resurrection. Acts 23.8 tells us about the Sadducees, that they believe that there is no resurrection, no angel or, or, or spirit. They did not believe in an afterworld. And again, I don't know what in the world these people believed in, but it would be very sad to be a Sadducee. And I want to play off of that multiple times here. Now, they were the religious political group. These guys were the guys that were in charge of the temple area. And you know, in Jerusalem, the temple and the Jewish people, the temple was everything. And they had control of the temple mount. They had control of what was going on in the temple. They were also the main people on the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish Supreme Court at that time. So they had a lot of wealth. They had a lot of power. They had a lot of influence and they wielded it. And they did not like Jesus coming in and disrupting their world, stealing the attention from them. They wanted the power and that sort of thing. Now, what, the, what did the Sadducees believe in? Well, what did they, they believe in? Number one, the Sadducees believed in the first five books of the Bible. That is the Torah. That is the Pentateuch. And that's a great thing to believe in. But they believed that to the exclusion of the rest of Scripture. Remember, Paul teaches us that we are to teach the whole counsel of God, the Old Testament, the New Testament, the Psalms, the Proverbs, the whole thing, in order to get a full view of what God is. And so they studied the first five books. And in the first five books, the resurrection isn't mentioned per se. So they didn't believe in the resurrection. They denied the resurrection of the dead. They resisted the apostles' preaching in the, in the epistles that Jesus had risen from the dead. They denied the afterlife. They denied the existence of the spiritual world of angels and demons. So all of which Jesus and the apostles taught on. Now, I want to ask you a question, and I think this is a good question. Does not believing in something make it untrue? <laughs> That's correct. That's correct. Does believing in something make it true? No, it doesn't. So what do you have to do? You have to look at the evidence. You have to look at the truth. You have to look at the data. And I would say that Christianity, we do not just have blind faith as we are accused of, but I believe we have evidential faith, evidential faith. And we're going to get into that more in just a few minutes. The Sadducees were a political, religious group, and they wanted to keep their control. By the way, the Sadducees were not heard of ever again after 70 AD when Rome came and destroyed Jerusalem and the Temple Mount. Never heard again. The Sadducees hated Jesus. They wanted to silence Jesus. And I want you to think about, extrapolate from that what you see in our world today. There are many efforts to silence Jesus, either tacitly or silently, behind the scenes with, with, with innuendo and that sort of thing, or overtly. If you live in a communist country, they want to keep the Bible out of your hands and they won't want you to mention one word about God because the government in a communist country is God. Radical Islam. Now, I'm not talking about Islam in particular because we know that all world religions view Jesus in a very positive note. But radical Islam wants to silence and not have anything to do with the real Jesus. You can't have the Bible in Saudi Arabia. You can't, and when these guys went to, into, the, into, the far, into the east there during the war, they had to kind of hide the Bible. It was all kind of secret. You didn't ha couldn't have it out in the open. The radical Hinduism is the same thing. They fear the real Jesus. And I would say the secular West, what we see in our government, in our media, 
our educational system, they are fearing the real Jesus and try to stifle down. And many churches today have bought into this where in these countries where, there, where there's a lot of restrictions and you can't have a Bible on threat of death, in our country, we have churches that have volitionally taken the Bible out of the pulpit in place of pep talks and, 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 and motivational speeches and, and your best life now and that sort of thing type of, of, of discussion. I call these world thinkers. World thinkers who want to pretend that God exists but don't worship him as God. They want to pretend. World think, again, has penetrated the church. Satan's ploy from the beginning was to distort and downplay the word. Has God really said that you should not eat the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Did he really say that? It's always been his tactic. So, the resurrection, true or false? We live in a world today that tries to impugn the resurrection over and over and over. And I can tell you, without the resurrection, there is no Christianity. If there's no resurrection, this is a false religion. You better turn to something else. Verse 23 and 24, the sad Sadducees will start their trap. The same day, again, it's another attack from another religious group attacking Jesus as he's being examined. Remember, Jesus is being examined like the Passover lamb was examined for four days when that lamb would go into the home and was inspected and they got to know the lamb and they got a relationship with the lamb. Jesus is being inspected for four days, and this is day number two of his inspection. The same day, the Sadducees who were, who were there had no resurrection came to him and asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother shall marry his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. So they're presenting an argument, and Jesus knows right where they're going to go with this. They're going to try to spring their trap. It's another Pharisee trap. And notice how they approach Jesus like everybody else does, like all these religions. Teacher, oh, you're, it, with, this, with this attitude of, of, of you're great and wonderful, Jesus, but we know that they're hypocrites. They're trying to get Jesus. They're trying to trap Jesus. Now, this had everything to do with what is called in the Old Testament as the Leverite Law. The Leverite Law. It's in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 6 and 7. It says this, or words to this effect. I'm going to summarize it. If a husband died without a son, the brother would marry his wife to produce an heir. This ensured that the family name continued and property holdings were kept in the family. Now, this law had a purpose. It helped preserve the name of the family and helped preserve the development of the culture. They'd have more people. Now, this is the sad Sadducee trap that they're trying to set for Jesus. And now they're going to spring it in the next verses, verse 25 through 28. He's going to give this childless widow example the seven, the, to the seven sons. So 25 through 28. Now there were with us seven brothers. The first died after he had married, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. Likewise, the second also, and the third, even to the seventh. Last of all, the woman died also. Now here's the question. Therefore, in the resurrection... Whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had her. Now, they think they have Jesus. They want to embarrass Jesus. Remember where this questioning is taking place. It's taking place in the temple where there's thousands of people, and the Sadducees have marched in with pomp and circumstance and are addressing Jesus in front of the whole crowd, trying 
to, 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 to just bring him down in the eyes of the people, to defame him in the eyes of the people. So, the sad Sadducees are, something, are using something called hyperbole, hyperbolic statement, an over-exaggerated statement. The wife is passed to seven brothers and no children. Now, I have a question for you. You're passing it from the first wife, or for the, for the wife is being passed to the second brother. He dies. Now, brother number three sees brother number one and two have bit the dust. Now, what must he be thinking? Can we skip this one? Or brother number four is saying, oh, brother number three, impregnate her. Get her pregnant, please. I don't want to come to me. So the crescendo question is, is the resurrection, in the resurrection, whose wife of the seven will she, have, will she be? For they all had her. Now, this will come on the screen. The sad Sadducees were trying to demonstrate the absurdity, the abject absurdity of the resurrection, and many people today in our world look at it as something absurd. Cannot happen. You know what we call that? Foolishness. We call the resurrection a miracle. That's what it is, a miracle, a miracle of God. Now, world think. When you think about world think, the resurrection is for the dull, the silly, the ignorant, the superstitious, the uninformed, the simpletons. You go to university and you believe in the resurrection, you're the simpleton. You're the dull. You're the uninformed, as that polished professor impugns everything about your faith. And so many young people fall for it and fall away from their faith. You know, it's 80%, 70-80% of churched kids in, in, in youth groups gone on mission trips fall away from their faith when they go to university. They don't know why they believe what they believe, and they have a hard time standing against the pressure in the university. That's why it's, 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 it's incumbent upon us teaching our kids before they go off into the world what they're going to hear, the contrary messages, and prepare them. Now, have you ever heard this one? I bet you have. No one's ever come back from the dead. Now, my dad used to say this. No one's ever come back from the dead, Rick. How do you know all this is true? And I says, oh, but dad, Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus told it was, us it was true. And do you know, dad? That Jesus never, ever lies. He always tells us the truth. And my dad would go, oh, oh, but never really moved him. Never moved him. Now, my dad was in the natural. He was a natural man. He wasn't born again of the Spirit. He cannot accept the things of the Spirit. Listen to what 1 Corinthians 2.14 says. This is how the natural man, the old man in Adam, views spiritual things as foolishness foolishness. That's how the world wants you to feel foolish because you believe in the resurrection, because you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. The scripture says this, the natural man, that is the man that is not born again of the spirit. Spirit is dead. No communication with God, no ability to communicate with God without a live spirit. That's why Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again. You must be born again. Your spirit must be given life. And the second you believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior, you put your trust in Him, you've been born again. Now, your born-again experience is validated, validated by a change in your life. 
you start to view things a little bit different. You start to act a little bit different. The way the places you go, the way you talk, the way you interact with your world, it starts to be a little different. Now, granted, it might be slow. And I, like I've shared with you guys, mine was a very slow turn in another direction. You want to go from here, and you know, years, you know, take a stop, revert back, take a stop, revert back, and finally you're going in another direction. This is where you want to go. New direction. A new you. The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolish to them. He cannot know them because they are spiritually discerned. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.20, there's two slides that are going to come up here. God has made foolish the wisdom of this world. That's how God looks at the wisdom of this world. Foolishness. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe or the lawyer? Where is the disputer of this world? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? You know what it says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 8? See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophies that depend on human traditions or the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. See to it, believer, that no one takes you captive for the philosophies of this world system. See, the world wants you to world think, to be like them, to march lockstep with the world. And God says, oh, no, we're the antithesis of the world. We're walking in a different direction from the world. We are not to world think. The, the Sadducees had a disbelief in the resurrection, and I'll tell you that, that, that disbelief of the resurrection permeates every single culture that comes along. My generation and that generation after that, the generation after that, have to deal with this, is the resurrection real or not? So many impugn it. Satan does his best to undermine the resurrection. He will always be working against this. Destroy the resurrection, folks, and you destroy Christianity. The world has to deal with something, though. They have to deal with it. You cannot hide your eyes to this. The tomb was empty. Now, on Resurrection Sunday, I say these words, and then you're going to say it right back. He is risen. He is risen there you go. That is, that, that is a good Calvary Chapel response right there. Yes, he's risen. We, we're not equivocating on this. Why do we believe this? Well, there was eyewitness testimony to the resurrection of Jesus. I mean, there are people that saw the resurrected Jesus. 500 at one time. That's not a mass illusion. That is 500 at one time saw Jesus. The disciples ate with Jesus. The disciples saw Jesus ascend into heaven. The disciples went from running away from the cross to taking the Christian cross message to the world because they saw the resurrected Jesus. Their life was changed when they saw them. And I want you to think about an encouragement of the resurrection because you need this going forward in your life. When who knows what knocks on your door, you need to know that Jesus is alive, Jesus is for you, Jesus will make a way for you through the mess of the wilderness that you're going through. It's good to know that there's a new world coming, and as Cass Elliott said, it's just around the bend. There's a new world coming. This one's coming to an end. 
full of boom, dun, 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 coming in love. Yes, a new world's coming. Jesus' response, you are mistaken. This is what you tell the college professor. Well, you might not be able to tell them out loud, but in your mind you're going, you are mistaken, dude. Because my pastor told me this isn't right. Yeah. Hopefully that's not your excuse. You know in your heart, not what somebody told you, you know in your heart, you've confirmed it by the word of God. You know that it's true. The resurrection. You are mistaken. Verse 29. Jesus answered and said to them, you are mistaken, you are deceived, not knowing the scriptures, isn't that important, nor the power of God. Not knowing the scriptures, nor the power of God. Folks, we serve an omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent God, immutable, transcendent, holy, righteous, all-powerful God. That's who we serve. We don't serve a paper mache God, a little God you put in your pocket. We serve the creator of the universe, and he is in full control. These guys make a huge mistake because they do not know the scriptures nor the power of God. You know, Jesus gave some fact statements, or there's some fact statements actually written in scripture concerning the resurrection. Now, if you do a literature search on this, there's a plethora of them. I've taken three, two from John and one from Daniel. Now, Jesus in the book of John says this about the resurrection, John 11, 25, and 26. I am the resurrection and the life. Now, I share this at every funeral that I do, every single funeral that I do, because it's a divine truth that people must indelibly imprint in their minds. You need this when you're on your way out of this thing. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies, and whoever believes in me will never die. Now, folks, that's good news. And I'll tell you, I've, I've got this new thing that I'm saying at every memorial service is that we talk about death, 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 and I talk about lifed. You've been lifed. You've been given, you have lifed, and you are going into eternity with your, with your Lord. Second one, John 6, 40. For my Father's will is that everyone. Now, that word everyone, I've shared this with you before. The word is pas, P-A-S. And it means every and all, everyone who looks to the Son and believes in Him shall have eternal life. And I will raise Him up in the last day. That's a promise. That's a promise. When our loved one goes, that's a promise. They, they're resurrected. They're in the presence of God, and we will join their family. Daniel 12, verse 1 and 2 is our Old Testament example. And I have a slide here, and I think this is just the coolest slide, so that's why you're getting it. Michael the archangel here, that's what's depicted, at least in this picture. <laughs> Daniel 12, 1. At that time shall arise Michael the great prince, who has charge of your people. Now, Michael is the archangel that is in charge of the defense of the nation of Israel. And by the way, folks... Israel is in its land, and Israel will not be displaced from its land. I don't care what Arab, Arab armies, I don't care what Russian armies, I don't care who comes down at them, Israel won't save itself. God will save Israel. That's what you will see. 
Michael, Archangel, charge of people, and there shall be a time of trouble. He's talking about the tribulation that is coming for the nation of Israel as they've rejected the Messiah, such as never has been seen, never been since there was a nation till that time. Isn't that interesting? Hundreds of years before Jesus, hundreds of years before the, before the New Testament was written, we hear about the tribulation period. And at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found in the book. Is your name in the book of life or is it not? It, I believe that all people's names are in the book of life when you are born. And as you go through life, that name is retained in the book when you say yes to Jesus Christ as your Savior. When you reject him, that name is extracted from the book of life. Big deal having your name in the book of life. And verse 2 and 3, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. Resurrection. Some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Folks, there's a real heaven, and there's a real hell. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. Those are the ones who believe. And those who turn many to righteousness, those are the ones that lead people to salvation, like the stars forever and ever. Oh, it is important that you believe in the resurrection, that you know, that you know, that you know that it is true. And Jesus chastens the Sadducees for not knowing the scriptures or the power of God. See, what Jesus is saying here, it is the power of God that assures the resurrection. It is the power of God. With a command from Jesus, folks, the resurrection will occur. You know this verse, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 through 17. It's the rapture verse. You know this. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And I'm telling you, when Jesus says, come up out of that grave, they're coming up. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the air, in the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always, always, always be with the Lord. You know where the church is? You know what the church is? The church is the bride of Christ. Jesus is the bridegroom. And the bride is always going to be where the bridegroom is. We will always be with the Lord. In verse 30, our resurrection state is being clarified. Watch, he's going to tell us. It's like the angels. He's telling the Pharisees this who don't believe in angels. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels of God in heaven. Again, the sad Sadducees don't believe in that. Jesus could not make it any clearer to these unbelievers, these sad Sadducees. There is a resurrection. In your life, when someone is trying to, someone's trying to impugn the resurrection of Jesus, you make it very clear, very clear where you stand. Oh, no, there's massive evidence that Jesus is alive. Massive evidence that he's alive. All you have to do is look at the changed lives of billions of people. I don't know what our heavenly existence will be like, folks. I don't have a clue, and neither do you. But I know that I will have a heavenly existence because my Jesus told me so. I can know that I know that it's going to surpass this world's existence. And I like to say this, oh, by the way, sad Sadducees, angels are real. There is a real angelic world. Those angels are messengers sent, commissioned by God 
And I would venture to say that each person has had at some point in their life some sort of angel contact, something that has happened. You don't know it. You don't know it. You don't know how many times the truck was coming into your lane. Your truck was going to crush you. And some angel just goes, oop, oop, get in your lane. Oop. I see them all the time. And they hit those rumble strips. I'm looking at those angels are putting them back on the road. They think they, we think they're waking up. But anyway, the angels. Believe, believers will be like the angels. What does this mean? I want you to hear this. There are, there's a group of angels called elect angels. Elect angels. Angels that chose to side or cho chose to side, side with, excuse me, the scripture calls the angel that chose to side with Satan in his rebellion. Let me say this again properly. Angels that chose not to side with Satan in his rebellion are called the elect angels. 1 Timothy 5.21 says this, I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect chosen angels that you observe these things. Elect chosen angels. I was wondering, what does that mean? Well, listen to this. I believe this to be true. God has given his higher creation. Now, you've heard this before. Angels and humans, the ability to choose contrary to him. This is choice. Those who are elect, at least in my belief in this, are those who have received the divine call to be loyal to God. When you receive Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are making a declaration that I am going to be loyal to the true God. Jesus is my Savior. I am loyal to him. No longer loyal to this world system. No longer loyal to my old ways. No longer loyal to my flesh who wants its own way. I'm loyal to Jesus. Now, speaking of the elect angels, Don Stewart puts it this way. These angels who did not stray from the Lord have been confirmed in their goodness. They, they are constantly loyal to God. This is a permanent quality of their character. Now, why is this important? Have you ever been asked this question? I have several times. Is there going to be any more rebellion in heaven? And I would say no. The angels are confirmed in their, in their belief. You, when you get to heaven, you remember that's phase three of salvation. Phase one, you were justified. The second you believed in Jesus Christ as your, as your Savior, Christ's righteousness was credited to you. Phase two, and now God views you as a son. Phase two is sanctification. Now you're living out your faith. You're being conformed to the likeness of Christ. No one is saved to be the same person. God changes lives. Phase three is glorification. That happens when you pass from here, when you are life. Okay? That's the state of perfection, no longer temptable. This is your test. The angels had their test. One-third failed the test. Two-thirds stayed loyal. This is your test. Will you be loyal to God? Will you believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior, or will you not? This is your life. This is your little of time. And believe me, it is a hoof of time. For people that will be graduating next week, we celebrate the graduation of a couple students. They feel like in their spirit, I'm still in the sixth grade. And I'm graduating? I have to go out into this world? I have to make my way in this world? Why just, I was just a kid. I was just in roller skates. 
And now I have to be a man or a woman. Whew. A wisp of time. It really is. Now, you might be in chemistry class thinking that's going forever. <laughs> but it is a wisp of time. In a summary, believers will be like the elect angels, confirmed in their character, and enjoy the presence of God forever and ever and ever. Isn't that nice? Now, this is better than any earthly marriage. You know, earthly marriages, they're a struggle. I don't care how good your marriage is. You have two sinners coming together, button heads. Now, if you do things God's way, you carry out your role, you have a chance to thrive in your marriage. Or you can stay in the fight, butt heads, and just survive, if that happens. How about 31 and 32? He makes a statement, God is a God of the living. But concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read? He again impugns them again for not knowing. Have you not read what was spoken to you by God saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. He, God, Jesus makes an absolute fact statement. No equivocating, no wondering. God is a God of the living, not a God of the dead. So he hits the Sadducees right between the eyes with this statement, Have you not read? Now, I might say that to each one of us here. Have you not read? Hopefully, this group of people will be in the Word every single day. I'm not kidding you. Every single day, getting your nourishment. Have you not read? If you are not in the Word every day, having read the Word, then you're going to be sucked away by this world system like you can't believe. You will drift down the road. Remember, you take your oars out of the water you go backwards. The current will take you backwards automatically. So you must be rowing against the current of life to make progress. Have you not read? Very important concept. And then he says this, I am. He makes an I am statement, and he's referring back to Exodus chapter 3, verse 6. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And if you remember this, this was the burning bush. And I don't know if you ever heard about the burning bush, but this burst, this bush just burst into flames in the middle of the desert. Not uncommon in the desert, but what, is on, what was uncommon was it wasn't consumed. And it got Moses' attention. And Moses approaches the bush and stop. Take off your sandals. Where you're approaching is holy ground. He hears a voice coming out of the bush. And God introduces himself. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon the Lord. And this is when Moses gets his call, that God will use him to deliver the nation of Israel from Egyptian bondage. Moses says, no, send somebody else, just like all of us. Let somebody else do the job. Don't send me. Send somebody else. But God says, oh, no, you're the man, or you're the woman. You're, you're, when he calls you, he calls you for a specific purpose, man or woman, to fulfill their purpose, to fulfill their purpose. And so he gives us all these excuses. And finally, Moses capitulates in verse 14. And in Exodus 3:14, Moses asks a question. Who do I tell them you are? Who do I tell the people, the children of Israel you are? And he says, the I am has sent you. You tell them I am who I am, that the I am has sent you. Now, this is a very significant thing. 
For the Sadducees did not, remember, they did not believe in the first five books, but here it's talking about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob being alive. I am not a God of the dead, but of the living. So he's, he's saying these, these guys are alive. In John, so these Torah experts are, were expected to know the, know the scriptures, to be familiar with the I am. Now, Jesus identifies himself as the I am in John seven times. Jesus says, I am God. I am the guy that was in Exodus chapter 3. That's the one that talked to you in the bush, Moses. And he says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes unto the Father except by me. And then he says, I am the vine and you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I remain in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus unequivocally says that he is the I am. And in case you think that there is a mistake on this, in John chapter 8, they wanted to kill him because he made this statement. I am in Greek is the eagle am I. I am he who exists. Now hang with me on this. I am he who exists. I am the eternal presence. Man lives in three dimensions. I was, I am, I will be. God lives in the eternal presence. He always is. Past he is. Present he is. Future he is. He is outside of time. God is the eternal presence. That's when, when we say I am, that means he is in every aspect of time from beginning to end. It's all the same to him, all of time. Now, the picture in Revelation 1.8, now this is speaking of Jesus, says this, and God said, and this is actually Jesus being referred to, I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the beginning and the end, says the Lord God. I am the one who is who always was and who is still to come, the Almighty One, the I am, the beginning, I am, the end, I am everything. And I'll tell you, this Psalm 90, verse 1 and 2 says it wonderfully. Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting you are God. That is who we serve, the I am. God is not a God of the dead, but of the living. And, and he's, again, he's saying this in the present tense. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. These guys are alive. These guys are alive. God is the God of the living. Now, I have a question for you. Does the Bible define death as non-existence? You're no longer going to exist. Okay. The Bible defines death as separation, not non-existence. Please indelibly put that into your minds. When we die, when we graduate, or we're lifed, as I like to call it, we are separated from our loved ones, and it is sad, but it is for a moment. We'll be united with them in the future. Believers are never separated from God for a nanosecond. Not for a nanosecond. When a believer dies, they are instantly, and I mean instantly, in the presence of God. 
I mean, you can't blink one sick billionth of a millionth of a second. Boom. It's how quick you're in the presence of God. That's what the rapture is going to be, by the way. In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, boom, we're there. Nobody's going to get a head start and say, I'm going to beat you. I'm going to beat you. <laughs> no, you're just there. 2 Corinthians 5.8 says it wonderfully. We are confident, yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body, to be present with the Lord. And I might say, as sad as it is for us here, for the believer, that's the most glorious day ever. Glorious day ever. And I'll tell you, this puts the nail in the coffin of soul sleep. Some people believe in soul sleep. No, -uh. no, absent from the body, present with the Lord. Now watch the effect of Jesus' rebuttal to the, to the, to the Sadducees. Astonishing. Verse 33. And when the multitudes heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. Astonished. What a, what a wonderful word. Astonished. The difference that Jesus makes in a per person's life, present and future, is astonishing, is astonishing. If you, you know, people would, look, at, I got saved. I'm sure the people I went to school with, they would just be wondering, really, really? Yeah, well, yeah, really, I, I, I had to get saved because they don't see me now. They, re, they, they, they remember a different person. I remember a different person. See, if I was me now, I would not hang around with me past. And probably you wouldn't either. We're different. Death, remember this. When you're dealing with people, death is hanging over the heads of everyone. Consciously, subconsciously, you know, we try to push it down, not think about it. But it hits you between the peepers constantly. The dead deer. The dead tree. The dead this. The dead that. It's always on us. Always on us. We try to stuff it down. Since the fall of man, death has been an unwelcome companion. You know, Methuselah lived a long time, 969 years. I imagine by 968, he's saying, when do I get to go? <laughs> I mean, by 968, he, this guy's got to have some, something going on in his body. Now, maybe at 2, 300, he's still cooking. You know, it might be like middle age for him. But by the time he's written, you're, you're ready to go in the 900s. Yeah. The loving God has placed eternity in the hearts of every person. It says in Ecclesiastes 3.11, when a heart hears and receives the life-saving message of Jesus, folks, you cannot help but be astonished that you will live with him forever. The multitudes heard this and were astonished by his teaching. You know who are not astonished? The Sadducees. They were ticked off. You know who's not astonished in your world? The non-believers who don't want the message. And I'm praying today that all who hear this message will be in the astonished crowd and say, yes, I'm astonished at you, Jesus. I believe that you died on the cross for my sins, and I receive you as my Savior. That's the most astonishing thing you can do with your life. You were not created to be a doctor. You were not created to be an astronaut. You are not created to be whatever you think you were created to be. Uh, you know, Barry Sanders was... He wasn't created just to be a football star. Barry Sanders was created to know Jesus Christ as a Savior. And so is every one of us. Whatever your station in life, make a big deal about the station in life. That's not a big deal. The big deal 
is who you are in Christ. Do you know Jesus Christ as your Savior? That's the big deal. Again, love Jesus or hate Jesus. You cannot help but be astonished by him. You cannot. In closing, who is Jesus really to you? Our world views Jesus in various ways. He does. They do. He's a teacher. He's a wise one. He's an enlightened one. He's a good guy. But they don't see him as God incarnate, God in human form. Jesus' own family thought he was loony, thought he was crazy until the resurrection. The world of Jesus' day denied, denied him, thought him to be false, maybe even a lunatic. That's what they thought. Jesus, Jesus had disciples. In John chapter 6, he had many disciples that went out. And Jesus gave them the bread of life talk. And he says, you must eat my body and drink my blood. Now, the Catholics have taken this to mean transubstantiation, that the wafer actually becomes the, the body of Christ and the cup, the blood of Christ. That is not what Jesus was referring to. He was saying, you must take me in. You must believe in me. Take me in as your Savior. And because of that teaching, many of those disciples left him. And he turns to Peter and he tells the rest of the group, he said, will you leave me also? And Peter says, oh, no, Lord, we do not leave because you have the words of life. You have the words of life. See, they were astonished by Jesus already. They weren't going to depart when the rest of the world did. No way. What does it get, when it gets down to the real nitty-gritty, when you're thinking about who Jesus is, C.S. Lewis puts it this way. A man, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something else. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come down, come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. Human teacher. He has not left that open to us. Is he Lord or is he not? That is the question. Is Jesus... Who is he to you? Is he a good luck charm? Do you stick him on the dashboard? A little picture of Jesus on the dashboard? you stick him on the wall? A little picture of Jesus? Or is he in your heart? Hopefully you've come to know him as Lord. Master. Ruler. Owner. Christianity hangs on the resurrection. Did Jesus really rise from the dead or not? One more time. Eyewitness testimony confirms the resurrection of Jesus. 500 at one time. They saw him ascend into heaven. And I'm telling you, the disciples' lives that they lived and they died violently for, they believed in the resurrection of Jesus. You do not die for a farce. You do not die for a lie. They died believing and knowing that Jesus is alive and that he commissioned them to go and tell the world about Jesus. Now, I have concluded, and I hopefully you conclude too, that what Jesus taught and what the Bible teaches is true. To me, and hopefully to you, Jesus is my Lord, and I owe him everything. 
That's really what is required of the Christian. This tacit, this silent, this toe-in Christianity, there's really no such thing as that. Christ calls you to be all in or not in. Choose you this day whom you will serve. The scripture is full of that. Jesus bought me with a price, his life for my life. I belong to him. And folks, it's going to come up on the screen what we are. This is what we are. We are bondservants of the Lord Jesus. Remember the word is doulos, one who is subservient, one whose will is consumed with the master's will. I'm subservient to eternally, entirely at the disposal of his master. I'm a slave, often translated bondservant, servant, or slave. The Hebrew word, ebed, had a similar connotation. Now, here's some guys that were bondservants. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. In Philippians 1.1, Paul and Timothy, bondservants, and they are proud of it. James, the half-brother of Jesus, bondservant. He came to believe after the resurrection. Jude, the half-brother of Jesus, a bondservant of Jesus. And I'm hopefully today that you call yourself a bondservant of Jesus. Your will consumed with the will of Jesus. What would he have me to do? How would he have me to live? I am not my own. Folks, we need to know this. I have been bought with a price. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20 has, says it perfectly. It'll come up on the screen. Do you not know, people of God, we don't worship God in temples. We are the temple of the living God. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? Do you not know that? Whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. It was a high price. Jesus' life. Therefore, honor God with your body. Honor God with your life. When it finally hits you, and I hope it does, who you are and who Jesus is, then you can say with all of your heart, not this half-in, mishy-mashy Christianity, with all of your heart, the Lord is my strength. He is my rock. In this world that wants you to fall down and worship it, no, He is my fortress. He is my deliverer. I take refuge in Him. He is my shield. He is, the horn, he is my stronghold. He is the horn of salvation. He is my hope. And I hope that you can just just shout it from the mountaintops, the Lord, He is my Savior. I serve Him. World, I serve Him. Workplace, I serve Him. Family members, family members, the most intimate of all relationships, I serve the Lord Jesus Christ unequivocally. I will not waver in this. Resurrection, true or false, bet your life it's all true. And because of the resurrection... You can know with all of your heart the most powerful God, now hear this, forgives you. He has forgiven us all of our trespasses. He has forgiven all of our sins. I've talked with people that says, I've, I've gone too far, I've done too much. No, you have not. If I'm talking to you and you're responding to me, you are savable. No sin did Jesus not die for. No murder, no lust, jealousy, you know, the whole list. He died for them all. He died for them all. And I would like to leave you with this last thought. Bask in this last truth. Because I live, you will live also.
That's a promise given to you. Don't be like the Sadducees. Don't be like the world. Place your trust in Jesus and folks, become unshackled. let Let the shackles just fall off of you and live as a free person. Remember what Jesus said? He who the Son has set free is what? Free indeed. You got that right. So let's remember what the resurrection means to you, the body of Christ. Father, thank you for this time that you've given us to study the infallible, inerrant word of the living God. Thank you for this word. Thank you for your truth. And now, Lord, thank you that we have the ability to come before you today and celebrate the Lord's table. May we remember what you have done for us. Your broken body, your shed blood, done for us. A memorial to remember what you have done. Thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, we're going to be taking communion. Hopefully, you have your elements, and they have been opened, so you don't spill them all over yourself. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we read these verses. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Remember, it's a memorial. Remembering what Jesus has done for us. In the same manner, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. And then he gives a warning. And I want to assure you, this is for the body of Christ. If you are not a Christian, this is not for you. If you are a Christian and you have sin in your life, this is not for you. You are to deal with those things before you partake of the elements. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weakened among you, and many sleep or are dead. And we're going to have a time of introspection right now. There'll be about a minute or so that this music will play, and you search your hearts. Anything between you and God you deal with. What I'm talking about dealing with is not I'm dealing with it just for the second so I can take communion. You're dealing with it for real. I'm not living this way anymore. I'm not going down this road anymore. I'm in the struggle to do what is right before God. Search your hearts during this examination time, and then we'll finish the service.
Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he broke it and gave thanks, he said, Take, eat. This is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Our Father, we thank you for the gift of your Son. We thank you for his broken body. We thank you for all the stripes that he took in my place. We thank you for the, that he took the piercing in his side. He took the crown of thorns. He took all the brutality that I deserved. Thank you, Father, for the gift of your Son. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your sacrifice so that I could have life with you forever. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. In the same manner, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's take of the cup. Again, we thank you, Father, for your Son. We thank you for the blood of the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. When that blood was sprinkled on each one of us, our sins are taken away as far as the east is from the west. Thank you for your broken body. Thank you, Father, for the gift of your Son, the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, who remits, his blood remits, takes away all of our sins. Thank you for the gift of your Son. In Jesus' name, amen.